body broken, blood poured out. If you hear that phrase on its own, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? Is it referring to a medical report from some accident? Is it the description of a crime scene or maybe the leftover carnage of a battlefield or a terrorist attack? Family violence, racial hatred. How long would our mental inventory run down the list of possible human evils before we might think of communion? Body broken, blood poured out. If you should finally arrive at communion with reference to those otherwise violent words, does it immediately connect inside your mind the direct relationship of all our human horrors and his willing sacrifice? Is it clear in your mind why all that list of sorrows and sufferings and evils awakened in our mind by the phrase finally ends by focusing our attention on his broken body his poured out blood? Well, then there's another tragedy connected to the same night, that same event. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and blessed it and broke it. <clears throat> no, betrayal may not seem as manifestly violent as the list we've just covered, but maybe betrayal is more damaging than any physical violation. Violence breaks our bodies and pours out our blood. Betrayal breaks our hearts, pours out our lives on the ground. So let's put this all together. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he asked them to take it, to eat it. Then he filled the cup and gave it to them to drink and he said, take this and drink it. This is my blood bread this is my body broken for you poured out for you somehow at this simple everyday family table at a special holiday time normally observed in israel as both a great and special family celebration and as a national memorial the national memorial of the liberation from bondage jesus takes the symbols of that great Passover and lifts them into another realm. In the face of the celebration of Israel's freedom, he tells them he's going to be handed over to their enemies. At the table that had become the closest symbol of intimacy for family and friends, he tells them he's about to be betrayed. And then in the face of that betrayal, he even gives the bread and the wine to his betrayer. This sets in motion the events that will lead in a few hours to the literal breaking of his body and pouring out of his blood. The cruelest torture ever devised by the twisted minds and demonic imaginations of evil men will become the place where all the evil that has ever or will ever be perpetrated from the dawn of time through the end of the age will meet upon him in a way very difficult for us to understand, be defeated by him. All the onlookers will see is another routine crucifixion, some 
sympathetic witnesses might chafe under the sight of yet another injustice, the slaughter of another weak Jewish victim. Soldiers, heartless from overexposure to this kind of evil, will at least at first consider it as a routine and mundane, bloody duty. But disciples who have been with him and heard his words and seen his works, who have come to deeply love and trust in him, will be far more bewildered, then far more plunged into utter confusion and despair as everything they had ever believed in and hoped for, all their dreams for themselves and for Israel, is splattered on the ground. They will go far beyond just feeling sadness, pity, or sympathy, even rage against the Romans and political zeal for Israel's liberation will become meaningless compared to the horror of total soul-deforming, mindless, meaningless, hellish destruction of everything that mattered to them. We thought it would be he who would deliver us from our enemies, explains the travelers later on the road to Emmaus. They all thought he would be their liberator. Try to think what it must have been to, to be them, to think like them, what they must have thought and felt. Broken, poured out. He said, broken for you at the table. Were they aware, would any of us have made the connection with the words spoken a few hours before at the family dinner table? Any possible connection with the warm, loving atmosphere, the closeness, the meal, the celebration, the bread and the wine. And now this, this horror, broken, poured out. Now someone who understood fully what was really happening had been able to give an informed, accurate sermon on the meaning of it all, could anyone present listening find some small ability to grasp what they were hearing and draw some tiny bit of strength and encouragement from it? No, I don't think so. The trauma striking every level of their psyches, the sound of agonizing screams, the smell of blood, sweat, and death, the sight of flesh ripped beyond recognition would be beyond their tether. The human mind twisted into a contorted frenzy of desperation as it seeks some means of propping itself up under the pressure of such terrible events. There's no coping with absolute nonsense of evil. There is an absolute nonsense in evil looking for rhyme and reason where there is no reason, where reason has been destroyed by evil is a hopeless attempt. And at its worst, their minds would become incapable of swallowing any more sights and sounds and a numb, self-medicating amnesia would try to set in. Rather than remembering, which he said they were to do, we would seek to lose our memory. But the memory would not fade or blow away. 
<clears throat> but would sink deep down inside our bodies and our souls and the core of us, maybe out of mind, but never out of us. Maybe out of sight, but never out of us. It would just burrow deep into our souls, rotting there till it kills us. Yet, the one they loved, the one they put all their trust and hope in, the one who healed their bodies and dried their tears, who raised their dead and said he was the meaning of life itself, is now the center of this monstrous spectacle of unimaginable death. He is the one who just a few hours before purposely made the direct connection with the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine. And he clearly riveted that moment, a moment of love, closeness, warmth, and even joy at the table together. He riveted it on purpose to this moment. This moment. A moment so terrible and is far from the goodness and love they had shared a few hours before as two events could possibly be apart from one another. This moment seeks to fill all moments. This horrible moment seeks to take over all moments with its traumatizing, torturous, poisonous images. It will not only fill the present with itself, but it will retroactively destroy the memory of any and all good that ever was and will flood forward forever, destroying all hope of what good might have been hoped for. No, Jesus, I cannot remember. I cannot ever swallow bread again. I cannot ever taste wine again. Only the living need to eat. I won't need to eat again because I cannot live past this moment. All life has stopped for me now. I don't want to swallow bread and wine and allow it to move down into my very body while it becomes absorbed into me, becomes an everlasting part of me, forever nourishing me with the memory and meaning of this terrible day that is swallowing up the meaning of our last agonizing night when you told us to eat your broken body and drink your blood wine, I don't want to remember. I can't bear remembering. Yet, as clearly as words could do, he meant them to see it, to take it, to eat it, to let it become digested, to become an integral part of their own bodies, absorbed into their own bloodstream. As often as you eat this, as often as you drink this, remember. Not remember as an act of recalling memory, but remember as a reenactment of the event itself, anamnesis in Greek, reconnecting to it, calling it out of the past as a memory and into the present as a living reality. But remember what? This horror that, that you have died and the way you died? 
Is that what we're supposed to remember? Do I want this hellish orgy of inhuman injustice and cruelty to be what I remember and reconnect to and ingest and chew on and drink in so that it fills me completely? For a moment, maybe turn off this message, and if you can, try to replace the agony of the disciples' dramatized response to the cross that I'm portraying here the best I can with some personal life-altering trauma of your own. Maybe you have come past it. Maybe its original pain is no longer crushing you, or maybe you're in it now. But whatever your loss and whatever your state of mind about it, try to enter into the same level of encounter with Jesus' invitation to you that the disciples were called into, broken and poured out for you. For whatever dark, hellish night of the soul you have had to face or are now facing. I've been spared many sorrows. As David said in the Psalms, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I have been given many privileges, seen many wonderful things, and have many who I love and who love me. I have nothing to complain about and everything to be thankful for. Yet, I've also been given the task of walking with certain people through terrible things. I've been allowed to witness some of the worst that human and demonic evil can do. And I've often had to go to the Lord to ask him to heal and cleanse my mind from the memory of what I have been exposed to. And before I learned to walk with the Lord, I had faced years of horror inside my own mind. Trauma inside the mind is no less trauma because it happens only in the mind. I knew at least from some degree of personal experience the taste of hell, of insanity, of terror, and engulfing mental hopelessness. I've heard now and then people criticize those who believe hell is only a state of mind. I always think when I hear that, well, do you really think hell in the mind is not part of hell? We all, if we have lived long enough, know moments that were so overwhelmingly bad, so surreal, that time seems to stop Meaning seems to vanish, and we taste a bit of what it might have been like to be part of the disciples that night, to become swallowed by sorrow. Some of you listening to my feeble attempts to ascribe, describe this kind of thing must be thinking, Clay, if you only knew what you're talking about, I bow to that fact that you may know what I don't know. I know my own sorrows. I know enough about them to know I cannot know yours. That's why Paul tells us that comparing ourselves with ourselves is not wise. But there is one who knows intimately. He not only knows mine intimately, but he knows yours. 
And he not only knows me and you on such an intimate level, but every human being who has ever sobbed alone at night, who has ever felt the lightning strike of shock at the news of a loved one's death, or who has ever faced the hands of a sadistic jailer, or ever heard the death sentence handed down by the judge to the criminal, the doctor to the patient, or the commander sending his troops into the maelstrom of hell on earth. He alone knows the full, real story of each precious, frail human soul. A few years ago, Mary and I attended the opening night of the film Saving Private Ryan. For those who saw it, you'll remember that it was up to that time the most vivid and realistic portrayal of World War II battle ever filmed. The approximately 20-minute footage of the troop landing on Normandy on D-Day was so accurate that an elderly veteran walking out of the theater beside us who had been there and survived nearly unsurvivable said the only thing missing was the smell. I thought there would never be anything to equal that amazing but agonizing feat of filmmaking till I saw Hacksaw Ridge. As I again found myself watching the reenactment of unimaginable human carnage and thinking to my overprotected, pampered 21st century self, what my father's generation had to not only face, but had to carry through to the bitter end, as I observed a reenactment of the hailstorm that was invasion of Okinawa. And to realize I'm only seeing a film facsimile, but one so accurate that it can put a man who was there into convulsive sobs. I had to get alone, get on my knees, and ask God to please again help me find the right place to stand with regard to dealing with the insanity of human evil and the unfettered vomiting of hell on earth by the wrong choices of men. We have 22 soldiers committing suicide now every week. You heard me right. I did not misspeak. The number is 22, and it is per week. We have thousands of Vietnam veterans still suffering their memories. And now there's an increasing report <clears throat> of the few World War II veterans that we still have among us who seemingly lived successfully for decades, keeping their memories locked up, who are now suffering the awakening of those memories and all the suffering that that brings as they come to the surface. Can we begin to see the reason Jesus directly connected the family meal at the table with his most beloved disciples and the broken bread and the poured out wine? Why he filled the meaning of that meal full with the actual breaking of his body and pouring out of his blood. Can we understand now why he wanted us to take it and eat it? So as to make sure it went down into us until it was thoroughly digested into our very body and bloodstream, deeper than the agonies of this broken life with the blood and the body of Christ go into us? Do we see why he told us that as often as we ate and drank of this meal, we were showing forth his death 
all that is in the past until he comes again, all that will be in the future. Meaning that all that would ever occur in between our past and our future has already been swallowed up by his cross and his resurrection. There is no horror, no matter how overwhelming, no loss, no matter how excruciating, no sorrow, no matter how deep, no sin, no matter how egregious, that he did not take into himself and bear away. And just as the original disciples could not see all that was taking place in the invisible, all the redemption that was happening, but only what was present to them on the surface of earthly time and space, blood merely on the sand, nails driven into wood, Roman cruelty, human evil, no matter how mundane were the cruel actions of robot-like soldiers carrying out a routine crucifixion, no matter how lowly Jesus seemed to be being reduced down to, the lower he went in suffering, the higher he was rising. And in his arms, raising up all who would eventually cry out to him from their own dust and blood for help. As Corey Ten Boom stated, like an anthem battle cry of the saints after facing her own cross in Ravensbrück Nazi death camp, there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are showing forth my death this does not mean he wants a memorial of his suffering. Jesus is not saying, I want you to always remember the horror, the agony, and the cruelty. Just the opposite. To show forth his death is to make a declaration of total conquest over all the powers that thought they were conquering him. We will address this truth more in a following message. For now... In our closing moments together, can you think with me about you? I understand the celebration of Passover is a family and national and corporate event. And for the most part, it should be done in the context of the spiritual family. But is it ever allowable to be done alone between you and the Lord Jesus? Especially in the face of so much brokenness of family, splits in relationships, even churches, and the loneliness and suffering that comes out of those splits. Is there not a place to go to receive the body and the blood that he, he gave to us on the night he was betrayed? Can you go there when you've been betrayed? And can you go there alone with him because you need the intimacy of only him? In my first pastorate, uh, I knew an elderly lady we called Miss Lily. She was at least 85 when I first met her. And for the decade or so that I was around her, which would have put her in her mid-90s, I never saw her feeble. In fact, she simply could outwalk me and most people I knew. She was amazing. 
Now, I know it could have been good genes, but that was not what she attributed it to. She said as she began to grow older, she began to feel the aches and pains coming on. and She was raised in an old Methodist holiness tradition where she took communion very seriously. She knew that when Israel came out of Egypt, after eating the Passover lamb, Psalm 105 verse 37 says, There was not one feeble one among their tribes. She saw in the book of Hebrews in chapter 8 verse 6 that we have a new covenant with better promises. And she remembered Jesus' words to the blind man, Be it unto you according to your faith. So she began taking communion every morning, just her and the Lord. Now, of course, this was no dead ritual for her. It was a time of intimacy, of worship, of soul-searching, of intercession for others, a way of setting her heart in the right focus for the day, which seemingly set her entire body in line. She began to feel stronger and stronger. She was not feeble to the day she stepped over to her true home. I have begun to follow Miss Lily's example. Just watching the evening news has become traumatizing. When I complain about what I see, it comes to my mind what the Lord said to Jeremiah. If the footmen tire you, what will you do when the horsemen come? And in my weaker moments, which come pretty often, I find a track of questions running through my mind that goes something like this. Is that really all there is to this life? A few spots of temporary joy and sanity and even some love now and then, but all eventually smashed up in some crash or shot by a drive-by shooter trying to make his mark so he can join a whole pack of other lost souls in some gang. Was Shakespeare waxing eloquent but also maybe prophetically accurate when he said all of life is just a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury? signifying nothing. And I'm thinking this all the while that I'm living in what is still the most materially secure and blessed nation on the face of the earth. I'm not sitting in the middle of Iraq or Syria or Cuba or Red China. I'm not living in the hellish nightmare of North Korea ruled over by a mindless adolescent with his finger on the trigger using his people as his personal disposable amusements. What would I do when the horsemen come? We simply cannot compare ourselves or our painful situations to any others. We are who and what we are. We can only answer to our Creator for what we know. And we know this about ourselves, that whatever we are in touch with of ourselves on the tiny conscious level is just that. And only that, a tiny conscious awareness. There are vast depths deep inside of us, underneath the surface of things, that we cannot plumb. We cannot even explore them accurately. Only parts come up to us consciously under circumstances we usually have no control over. Fears, lusts, memories, longings. And also, courage, 
faith, vision, and love. They're all there, naked and open, but only before the eyes of one, only one who can see and discern us. The betrayal of the battlefield of Okinawa in Hacksaw Ridge presented the horror of satanic humanity at its worst. Shattered bodies, disintegrated souls, bloodlust, hatred, and rage. Yet in the very face of the worst that man and demons can produce, in the middle of that bloody chaos, there was the very best in the heart, the mercy, the courage, the compassion, and faith manifested in what Jesus refers to as the greatest love that any man can have when he lays down his life for his friends. You and I are not likely to ever be called upon to face such a terrible prospect. Yet, we may. We don't know. But if we never face such war, we do face the wars of our own, both around us and inside us. The generations before us which carried the burden of world war and all the wars were not made of different stuff than we are. They did what they had to do when the evil of the times demanded them to do it. And you and I will do whatever we are called upon to do regardless of whether the evil is a world war or a war inside us. The same vast ocean of chaos roars in in us and around us. Life shatters us. Then time scatters us. Like the ripped and torn bodies of the battlefields, we are ripped and shredded also. I'm not for a moment comparing our pain and their pain, their courage up against our maybe lack of it. But again, comparing ourselves among ourselves is never wise. Your private, quiet battlefield that has ripped and torn you inside is maybe not the dramatic display worthy of an epic motion picture portrayal, it may seem mundane and silly to even speak of it in terms of high drama, but if the end result is still the same, leaving you torn, shredded, bloody, shattered, then scattered, if the end result is exactly the same inside you as the physical battlefield produced on the outside, it's all ultimately about the same issue. Sorrow, horror, loss, and death. You cannot think your way through all this. You cannot will yourself to rise above it. You may think you are succeeding by sheer force of will to push it all aside and carry on living from the neck up, but sooner or later the inner reality begins to show as we are now experiencing with our elderly World War II vets who did just that for their entire lifetimes. But now, as the outer man begins to fade, the inner man in his overload of pain is rising to the surface. What did God provide for us in the face of such unimaginable pain? 
Where are we shattered that he has not been broken? Where are we scattered that he has not poured himself out for us to regather us? The most childlike, simple, daily thing, daily bread. Every parent understands that. There's no great philosophy or struggle or moral dilemma in it. It's just what parents do, just what trusting simple children respond to. Food, necessary food for sustaining and growing. Give us this day our daily bread. See, it's for this day, the day you're living in right now, this one, the one you're struggling to face or the one you're enjoying. Like life-sustaining manna in another wilderness, which could not be stored up but had to be gathered for this day, God made our world in such a way as to communicate to us every day we need the same thing. We need the day to be filled with the bread for this day. We need what we needed yesterday. We'll need it tomorrow. Now as a totally trusting, dependent child, I take into my body the gathered up and restored healing integration of his body, the one loaf. I drink in his blood poured out in his death that now supplies me with eternal life. And as I eat and drink I'm doing more than merely memorializing. It's this misunderstanding of the meaning of the word remember that strips the power of communion from us and turns it into the stale, plastic, I'm sorry to say boring event that it has become in so many churches. It sadly seems accurate to reduce it down to almost a plastic event, plastic cups, plastic tasting little bread-like objects. I don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that there needs to be some elaborate cup or fancy sort of baked item to make it real. Not at all. God will show up with stale bread and contaminated water in a concentration camp. It's not and never was the accoutrements, no matter how beautiful they are and no matter how symbolically meaningful they are and they are symbolically meaningful and they are beautiful and I am not being critical of them per se but the moment they become the focus and we miss the point then we've badly missed the point it is his presence to you and your presence to him that matters when you show up in faith And loving expectation, he shows up too. Of course, I'm speaking of showing up in figurative terms. He's always with you and you're always with him. But just like a married couple is always married, they can still miss each other if you refuse to make yourself present in the relationship. See, it's in this childlike, humble moment when you lay aside all your storm of thoughts and fears and concerns and place yourself before him, you in him, and then receive his body and blood, him in you. 
that you that's when you're truly remembering reconnecting and again not that you are ever disconnected but you are willfully bringing your union with him up into your full consciousness it's in that moment that you are then able to grasp more deeply what it means when the scripture says that he is your great high priest I wish we had time to read all of Hebrews, but Hebrews chapters 2 and 4 says, In all things he was moved to become like his human family. In all things he was moved to become like his human family, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to fully comfort all who are also tempted. And there is no creature that is not fully seen by him, but all things are naked and open before his eyes. All that darkness, all that confusion inside, all those deep unconscious and subconscious issues that you can't access, you you only become aware of it to some degree, then it disappears back down inside of you. It's all naked and open before his eyes. <clears throat> Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us come boldly, therefore, to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. David Meese, several years ago, wrote a song based on the events of the road to Emmaus from Luke chapter 22, which we referred to previously in this message, when the travelers begged the stranger that they met not to leave them, but to spend the evening together. In their sorrow and bewilderment, uh, they, they could not recognize who it was that was walking with them and who it was that was sitting at the table with them, who it was speaking to them. They didn't know him until he broke the bread. It was when Jesus broke the bread that they suddenly recognized him. David Meese describes for us in this masterpiece of a song that we are most intimately met by Jesus in the places of our brokenness and blindness. And he comes as our great high priest and is known by us in the breaking of the bread. All at once, he stood beside me like he'd been there all along. Not a stranger, but a father who can sense when something's wrong. I couldn't bear for him to leave me, so I begged him to stay, spend the evening a few moments before he went his way. Then like a host, he stood and blessed me, broke the bread and poured the wine. Then there was something I knew I recognized. David Meese from the album simply titled Seven and also on the album titled Odyssey 
and can be obtained by going to his website for ordering information. Anything by David is worth your investment, by the way. This passage from Luke, which David Meese portrays in this song, always brings to my mind the image of Melchizedek when he met Abraham after the rescue of the kidnapped people of Sodom. The king of Sodom offered Abraham riches. The king of Salem, Melchizedek, the king of peace, offers Melchizedek bread and wine. An obvious foreshadow of this drama in Luke 22. Who is Melchizedek? All that is told to us about him is that he's the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God. Now regardless of whether you believe he was a mere human who signified the coming Messiah or whether he was Messiah himself in a pre-incarnate theophany, the image is that of Jesus as our great high priest who stands in between heaven and earth and offers healing and grace, not in the trappings of the world like the king of Sodom, and not in the perversions and idolatry of Sodom, but in its, in its total opposite, in the simplicity of childlike trust, humility, and the receiving of bread and wine. In closing today, I want to share two songs with you. One representing our our coming to the Lord privately just between you and him in communion. And then the second one, celebrating the corporate nature of communion. Now, of course, ultimately it's, it's best, I, I guess you could say, best is not the right word, but it's, it's the ultimate purpose of communion to celebrate the body and blood in a community of believers. That's the one uh, main symbol that we are one loaf, one body, one spirit. But that should not hinder us when we sense the need to come to him as individuals. For just as surely as we are one with those who have already passed over, though they are physically absent, in the same way we declare when we are receiving communion, that with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we celebrate this meal. Well, all the company of heaven is not physically present. They're not visibly accessible, but we, we celebrate their presence in that one table that brings us as, in together as one, one community under one king. Same way, when I, when I received the body and blood of the Lord Jesus by myself, I am doing it with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, including you, who I can't see and who I can't access physically. But I'm one in spirit. And that's one of the main reasons I'm focusing so much on this subject. For those of you who are alone out there, I know that there are numbers of you who do not have access to a body of believers that celebrates the real presence of Maybe you have a, some, some access to fellowship, but there's some, some of the things we're talking about here that you can't even broach. That, that actually m makes you feel, in some ways, more alone. So I offer you this truth as a comfort and an encouragement and a place of strength uh, until such time, Lord, make it soon, that we do have 
contact with the, the, the body of Christ on a level where we can share these things more intimately with each other. But in the, in the few minutes that we have left, I want to share again, first the song that I quoted a while ago from David Meese, which represents our individual intimacy with the Lord in communion. And then we'll close with a prayer together and then the last song which celebrates the corporate nature of communion. He walked beside me Like he'd been there all alone Not a stranger But a father Who can sense when something's wrong And he answered all my questions And he understood my fears But somehow vanished now that he Can't you see who walks with you? Can't you hear who speaks your name? Can't you feel something stirring in your heart? How is word rain strong and true? Like a once familiar stream But the paths we follow from now on Be the couldn't bear for him to leave me So I begged him to stay Spend the evening a few moments Before he went his way Then like a host he stood and blessed me Broke the bread and poured the wine Then there was something I knew I recognize, yes, I can see who walks with me, I can hear who speaks my name, and I can feel the stirring in my heart. I know I'll never be 
Yes, I can see. I can see who walks with me. I can hear who speaks my name. And I can feel something stirring in my heart. How it's Like a once familiar strength And I know I'll never be Father, for those of us who hear this message who are to some degree alone, we are without a functioning, stable body of believers. Some who feel like they're almost on an outpost in the kingdom warfare. I pray, Lord, that this message will be especially helpful and comforting to them. But I pray also, Lord, that in time, in your wisdom, and in your sovereign providence, no person would be left without uh, the, the corporate support of each other in Christ. But then there are those of us who are in corporate relationships, but there's always things that we face in our private lives that really we're alone in. No one really understands but you. So we pray, Father, for both aspects of our lives, the private, individual struggles that we face, and then the, the greater corporate calling that we've all got to love one another, support one another. I pray, Father, that somehow through the weak attempt to try to address these things in this message. Your Spirit would take it and bless it and make it broken bread and poured out wine for those who, who need it. Until we are all finally home together with you, Lord, bless this bread and wine. May it be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
have traveled here from the east and west, from the battlefields we have come to rest, and we enter now in this holy place to renew our strength as we seek your face. We rejoice in this sacred night as we kindle the Sabbath light. We have traveled here from the north and south with a hungry heart and an open mouth as we drink the wine and we eat the bread we unite with you our exalted head and with all who you call your own earth and heaven before
break the body and blood in a community of believers, for that's one of the main symbols that we are one loaf, one body, one in spirit. But that should not hinder us when we sense the need to come to him as individuals when we need to remember, reconnect. Not that we were ever disconnected. We've stated that already. For just as surely as we are one with those who have already passed over, though they are physically absent, so that we declare when we meet to receive communion that we are doing so with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Well, the same truth applies to me and you. We are not maybe visibly, physically present to each other if we receive communion alone with just us and the Lord. But in that partaking, we are not alone. We are never alone. Can you see who walks with you? Can you hear who speaks your name? My whole purpose in this message is to help reawaken us to the great gift that was left to us on the night Jesus was betrayed. What about when you have been betrayed? Where do you turn? You turn to him. On the night he was betrayed, that's when he took bread and wine and established the meal that symbolizes and communicates the healing of broken hearts, the mending of broken relationships, the forgiveness of sin, the communion, co-union, reconnection. And when you feel so utterly alone and so without anyone to understand what you're going through, this is the place to go. But we've, <clears throat> we've so institutionalized it and so shrouded it in religious uh, activity. And again, I'm not, I'm not negative about those things <clears throat> unless they become uh, a means of losing the real purpose. Then they, they do need to be criticized and, and, uh, and called out. But if if you could turn to him in those moments, and because you are flesh and blood, he has given you something tangible, something you can chew, something you can swallow, something you can make contact with. That's not idolatrous for heaven's sake. He's gonna be, yeah, it can become idolatrous. A person who receives the body and blood as a mere religious ritual and then goes out and lives in the opposite spirit is committing spiritual suicide. That's what Paul warns us about, about those who partake of the, of the communion table unworthily. But that has nothing to do with the unworthy things in your life you're most concerned about that you want to bring into his presence so that you can receive grace and mercy in time of need to help you overcome them. You know, the enemy is a master religionist. He knows how to manipulate religion. He's the inventor of religion. He loves to take that which was meant for our good and turn it into a burden that is the very opposite of what it was intended for. So in these closing moments together, let me pray. Let me just ask the Holy Spirit to help me and you 
re-engage our heart, our mind, and our body in the reception of the meal that Jesus intended, not as a mere memorial, but as a means of grace that will minister grace to us in our mind, in our emotions, in our body. Father, I just bring to you now your children, individually and corporately. I thank you, Father, that it is both an individual and a corporate event. But it's, it's one that you intended to be a place of meeting, a place of re-engaging, reconnecting with one another. And so I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, for reawakening us to the, the, the reality of what you intended to be given to us in the communion. Holy Spirit, come. Do in all of us individually what only you can do. All things are naked and open before your eyes. There's nothing in us so deep and dark and unreachable that you cannot uncover it, not to condemn, but to heal. Not to discourage, but to strengthen. We thank you for it. In Jesus' precious name.